Mormon Matters Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support separate from Mormon Stories Podcast. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Weatherspoon, and I have three fantastic panelists again. Today, we're going to talk about motherhood within Mormonism. We're going to talk about motherhood within society as well in the more general ways. What are the expectations that are put upon mothers? How much of it is culturally constructed? How much of it is essential to womanhood? Is, is it truly the, the nature of women that this is their purpose and their highest calling to be mothers? And we're going to go deep and we're going to go broad, and we've got just the panelists to do this. I'm excited to have two people who to come back to this panel. And just like last time, uh, we're going to have the, the fun of two Chelsea's. We're going to have Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea Fife again and Chelsea Strayer. And then our third person is interesting uh, in that she has a shared name too, but it's Jennifer Finlayson Fife. And she's gonna she's joining us too, and so she and Chelsea Fife share a last name. But we're gonna try to keep you from being confused, and the the everyone will will do their best to say who they are when they're speaking and stuff. But I would love to have Chelsea Fife start us off as a, a brief introduction of who you are and where you're from and all the good stuff. Great. Well, I am thrilled to be back doing another Mormon Matters podcast. I'm Chelsea Fife. I was raised by goodly parents. (laughs) I'm a lifelong member of the church. I was raised in California. My husband, Mike, and I have lived in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Chicago, Illinois. And we did that before moving to North Salt Lake a few years ago. So we live here with our lovely and oh-so-well-behaved four young children. Great. Thanks so much. And and you've been on the one on ritual and the one on modesty that we've done before, right? Yes. Yes, Yes. I have. Terrific. And Chelsea Strayer, I know you were on our ritual one with us before. Would you remind everybody about your background? Sure. I was raised all over the West, Oregon, Utah, California. My dad is seminary and institute um, director. I was raised in a very traditional family with eight kids. And I went to BYU. And then after I graduated, I went to graduate school at Boston University and got a master's and a PhD in anthropology. And I do my research on West African traditional healing. And since then, I've followed my husband to Baltimore where he's working on his PhD. So we are perpetual graduate students and I have a little 18-month-old daughter. Terrific. Thank you so much. Jennifer Finland Fife, you are known. I don't know if you know how often your your interview with Natasha Parker gets talked about on our podcast here, as well as I know in a lot of our circles. But I'll just throw that out to you. Would you, would you talk a little bit more about what you and Natasha discussed on Mormon Stories and then kind of fill us in on all the good other stuff? Sure. Um, so, yeah, so Natasha and I did a uh, – she interviewed me, um, I guess, about eight months ago on the subject of my dissertation, which – is about LDS women and sexuality and looking at the effects of patriarchy on female sexual agency. 
you know, basically I was looking at the radical feminist critique and whether or not it was an apt critique for LDS women. And so that interview uh, was all around my dissertation as well as the clinical work that I do with LDS couples around sexual issues. So I've become a bit of a Mormon sexpert uh, as much of my, <laughs> much of my clinical practice has to do with couples issues and, and sexual issues between couples. So I'm a therapist, a psychotherapist, and I practice in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And like others, I grew up in a traditional Mormon family with eight, eight children in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, my parents both grew up in Idaho, but my dad took a professorship there in Vermont. And then I went on to BYU for my undergraduate degree in psychology and women's studies, and then went to Boston College for my master's and PhD in counseling psychology. And then I started my private practice several years ago here in Chicago. Great. And did you mention your kids? Oh, yeah. And I, I'm married to John Finlayson Fife, and I have three children, who, one who's 12, who has autism, and then a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl. Great. Well, thank you so much for all that. I will let the listeners know that my hope and desire is to speak very little during this podcast. And this podcast was brought to to me as a topic. And all the legwork was done really by Chelsea Fife. And I have just enjoyed the last few days of looking at the wonderful discussion that we've had ahead of time. So Chelsea, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to throw it to you as a, as a to give us the broad framing and to launch us into where you think you'd like to, to go first. And like I say, I'm hopefully mostly going to be listening. So thanks. I first started thinking about motherhood in this context a few months ago when I taught the Relief Society lesson in my ward. The lesson was on family responsibilities. And so as I taught the lesson, I posed the question, does excellent mothering guarantee excellent children? And clearly the answer is no. The answer was no. And so then, then we, we continued, well, does horrible mothering guarantee a horrible child? And again, the answer was no. And so I posed the question, well, we're taught as women that motherhood is the most noble and honorable calling that a woman can fulfill. It is her greatest opportunity on this earth, and it's divinely given and expected that it's something that we do. And so if excellent mothering cannot guarantee an excellent child, then why is it that motherhood is so noble and so good? And I continued that maybe motherhood is so valuable and so beneficial, not because of the effect that it has on our children, but rather because of the effect it can have on us as individuals. And this message resonated really deeply, and we had a really beautiful, really empowering discussion about the intrinsic value of us as daughters of God, and that the purpose of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother sending us to earth wasn't so that we could be a mother, period. The purpose of them sending us to earth was so that we could grow and change and put off the natural man and become more like our Savior, more like Jesus Christ. And we know that that's why we're sent to earth. The scriptures are full of quotes and, and prophecies and you know, stories about why we're on earth to, to become more like, uh, more like Jesus. And so the, the point was made that motherhood maybe is so valuable and so divine and so noble because it is a very effective and 
efficient way for us as women to refine ourselves. That when we choose as individuals, as daughters of God, to enter into the role of mother, it gives us the opportunity to serve, to care, to be loyal, to grow, to teach, to develop kindness and love. And those are things that not only serve our children and and are incredibly beneficial and influential in a positive way to our children, but more so have the effect to change us. And the one element of the equation of motherhood that can be guaranteed is not that excellent mothering will produce an excellent child, but we can be guaranteed that excellent motherhood and, and, and intense effort in motherhood will change us as women. So this resonated, and we had, like I said, we had a great conversation, and I was shocked at the amount of letters, really, and comments that came during the week after the lesson was done. I was shocked how many women came to me and said, Chelsea, I have never thought about motherhood this way. I've never considered the fact that motherhood was something that the Lord gave, first and foremost, for me to change myself. And I was really moved by one or two comments from women who said, the perspective that we talked about on Sunday and that was presented has let me release a lot of guilt because I have wayward children or because I have children who have made choices that I wouldn't have wished for them. And this idea that women felt empowered at the thought that motherhood wasn't the end-all, be-all purpose of their life really caused me to think about the way we're teaching motherhood and if maybe there isn't a better way for us to talk about motherhood within the church, particularly with our young women and our daughters. So that's kind of where this whole idea and got started. And it's just been kind of rolling around in my head and, and, and gaining force through, through the months. Now, Jennifer Finlayson Fife came to mind as somebody who would have amazing perspective about this. And Chelsea Strayer, with her experience with, with other cultures and you know her background with anthropology, I think also ha- could have some really, really valuable and insightful ideas about this. And so that's, Dan, kind of how it all came together. If if I'm hearing this, and I'll, I'll let me try to make this the sort of the transition into the first round of discussions, you had this wonderful experience. You weren't really in this Relief Society lesson trying to deconstruct how we teach motherhood. You were just simply having this positive discussion with women about what what it's for, what are its limits, that it isn't the be all end all. But you didn't go in with them and, and do a critique of of the rest. It kind of came, yeah, and, and if I can throw one more point in, I, I was aware going into the lesson that when you talk about motherhood, there is, there's a balancing act that needs to happen because I think by and large, most women, if not all women and men agree that motherhood is a remarkable influence on children. Motherhood, by and large, is a good thing. It, it, it impacts on children and on others maybe greater than any other influence children have. And so that's something that I felt was necessary to put on the table that we all, nobody's questioning whether or not motherhood is good and valuable for children. The point I wanted to make is let's look at motherhood a little bit differently. Let's look at motherhood from the the point of view that it's also for us. It also changes us. We as individuals are intrinsically valued because we are daughters of God. We're valuable because of who we are on an eternal scale, not because of what we can provide for others, not because of 
what we can do for others. So that, that was kind of my, my thought process as well, going into the lesson. Good. I don't think, I hope it won't come across and I don't sense from anybody in all this, our conversation ahead of time that, that people will get the, the idea that nobody here values mothers or et cetera. We are just going to mostly talk about motherhood within the Mormon context, motherhood as an expectation, the rhetoric that it is the purpose of things. We're, we're going to talk about young women lessons. It says the purpose of this lesson is to help you feel good about this, which is your divine role. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think with that sort of in mind, I know that one of the fruitful areas that we talked about in our email discussions and things like that is, is the matter of choice and how that is such an important piece of the equation for good mental health, good sense of self, etc. So I don't know, Chelsea, if you want to start or if you want to throw it to the other Chelsea or Dr. Fife to kind of get that ball rolling. I'm trying to think how we could kind of lead into that. Chelsea, I did have um, a little comment after your introduction. Okay. Chelsea Strayer. Um, I think that that was a brilliant, brilliant way to teach that class. And I really wish that I would have heard this before that lesson in our ward. I just really do think that that's such a good way to lead with the spirit when you have such a variation of women in the classroom. And I also have kind of a story related around that topic. Before I had kids, I, you know, was in a lot of women's studies classes and reading a lot of feminist literature. And one of the discussions I had with my Um, classmates, one of them said, hey, if motherhood is so great, why aren't you guys doing it, was her comment to the men. You know, if it's so great, if it's the greatest thing anyone can do, if it's the most divine thing, if it's the most important thing anyone can ever do, why aren't you guys doing it, was kind of the conversation. And I went home with that just furious. I agreed. I said, you're right. I keep in my religion, I keep getting told it's the most important, it's the most divine. But none of them want to be stay-at-home dads. And in <laughs> fact, the people we revere in our church and in our gospel are often people who really are so devoted to the church that they spend little time with their families, you know. And I just remember at the beginning, before I had children, being kind of um, angry by this. By this saying, hey ladies, it's really important for you, so go and do it, but not for us. Or the idea that... If you meet a stay-at-home dad, people often have negative connotations. You know, he's lazy or he's incompetent. And I often translate that and say, well, what do you think about, what do you really think about stay-at-home moms, you know? But the interesting thing, according to your analysis, is once I had a kid, it kind of changed for me. And my husband and I do equal shared parenting, and it's been kind of a process in learning how to do that and being really equal in the home. But it changed one day when I realized if it, it really is that great, why aren't you guys doing it? You know, it became instead of, hey, it must not be that great because you don't want to do it, to it is so great. You guys are missing out. You're missing out on those little moments. You're missing out on that relationship. You are missing out on the most important thing. And I just thought that transition in my life was not expected And it was such a shocking moment for me, and it kind of translates into what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and and I think that that really hits the nail on the head because I think motherhood is amazing and wonderful and noble, and we talk about it being all of those things without mentioning that maybe maybe it's so wonderful and beneficial and noble because of how it changes us as women. Now, it makes sense to me that there can be roles 
by which women are most effectively changed and become more like Christ. It also makes sense to me that there are roles by which men are most effectively changed and given the opportunity to be more like Christ. And I have to wonder, because we hear so often the equivalency of the priesthood and motherhood, if, when I, if I'm trying to fit it all together in my brain and make it work the way it's been presented to me, I can accept the, the notion that the priesthood and functioning within the roles of the priesthood is a very effective way for men to become more like Jesus Christ. Women, motherhood is a role by which they can very effectively change and grow and develop. So in that regard, I get it. Motherhood, priesthood, I get it. But I also feel very strongly that in order to understand that lesson and make the most of motherhood, one needs to recognize that they are put on this earth because they are intrinsically valuable. They're put on this earth to become more like their divine parents. We are not put on this earth to become a mother. We are not put on this earth to have the priesthood. We're put on this earth to change and grow and serve, and, and we all have roles by which we can do that. And roles change us also in all sorts of different ways. I mean, fulfilling your callings is a role that changes you. You know, being a teacher to your friends or neighbors or your children, that's a role that changes you. Being a student changes you. There are all sorts of roles in life that change us. So motherhood, I say, is one of those things. Let's start to look at ourselves as valuable and look at ourselves as what we're ultimately trying to refine. And I think as we do that, we'll have a greater impact in the roles that we choose to, to take on. Chelsea, I agree with you partially, but partially I'm going to step in and disagree. Sorry, Jennifer, for <laughs> talking so much. What I disagree with, I mean, I think it's a beautiful idea. I really do. And I think the thing I disagree with is the the complaint, like the juxtaposition of priesthood and motherhood, because I think that there is an alternative to motherhood, and that's fatherhood. And I think mm-hmm. everything that a mother does that you just talked about, in every way it changes you, in the pure love that you feel, in feeling like your heart is placed outside of your body in some other person for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. In all of those ways, there is nothing gender specific. There is nothing, it's parent specific. And I think you could replace every word you've said this whole podcast with parent and it would fit accordingly. And I think you'd get a barrage of fathers who would agree. And mm-hmm. so I guess for me, I, I, I like what you're saying, but I also think that We do not enough, just like the way we teach motherhood, we do not enough value the role of fatherhood the way we do motherhood. And I think that that's a problem. And I think that equating priesthood with motherhood is not actually something that's helpful for me and a lot Mm -hmm. of people that I know. Well, and I can actually, I actually really agree with you. And in my expression of that story, that is, that's kind of in my mind, the way that I reconcile the delivery of the message motherhood is to women as priesthood is to men. That is the way, that's kind of the mental gymnastics that I have to go through to reconcile that. If if I'm just speaking for myself, Chelsea Fife, I, I totally get that. I agree. Motherhood is to a mother or a woman as fatherhood is to a father. So I agree with you 100% speaking from my personal belief system. I get it. I think, you know, um, as I'm listening to the two of you talking, this is Jennifer, Finlayson Fife, um, I, I think some of the reactions I'm having to it is that I think there's no question that marriage, that f- 
parenting, family relationships, at least potentially, have the capacity to help us grow up, to evolve, to become more loving, grounded, Christ-like people, because they stretch us in ways that if we're just attending to ourselves, we will never be stretched. And I think there's no question among this group, or probably most human beings, that motherhood isn't an essential role that makes has a huge impact on the lives of our children. I think that some of our challenge in the church is that motherhood is spoken of more from, to quote a feminist whose name eludes me right now, as the institution of motherhood, which is separate from motherhood. And the institution of motherhood is that as motherhood is defined by patriarchy, right? Motherhood as defined by men, meaning we want to create the institution of motherhood and enshrine it and make it the most noble, wonderful, blah, blah, blah (laughs) thing that women should be doing so naturally as a way to create a power differential as well as to give away some of the hardest work and in a way that works for men in patriarchy. (laughs) Yes, unpaid labor, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And, And so, you know, people might see that very differently. I'm not even here to say that I particularly agree with that necessarily. But what I would say is that as I see the problem for many women in the church, it's that motherhood becomes defined as what women are essentially and what they need to be and do in order to demonstrate their value as women. As opposed to motherhood or fatherhood or parenthood being defined by the people who are doing it as a way of us saying, this is what it means to me to be a mother. This is what is hard for me about being a mother. I think we would actually be much more able to support one another in a relief society if we were able to have more authentic conversations defined by our own experience as opposed to being defined by a kind of how to say it, an institutional message around what you're supposed to believe it is and how you're supposed to feel about it. And if you're truly feminine and uh, doing, you know, a good woman in the church, this is how you're going to orient to this role. Jennifer, I think that's such a good, great way to see it. One, just one addition is I have a couple friends who are dealing with infertility and I have an older single sister. And I think the expressions I get from them and one friend in particular often says if motherhood is her main identity and that's something that God has not given her, she has a really hard time reconciling that with her divine role, her main purpose, etc. Mm-hmm. And that with like, let's say something like the priesthood, it is kind of just given to everyone who is a male who's 12, you know, yeah. who's worthy. And so I think she struggles saying I'm worthy, I'm trying but I really don't have control over this gift that is supposedly what I'm supposed to be doing regardless of me having control. And I think that that's an element there too, the control of the, like you said, the personal control. Thank you so much for all those. Chelsea, I'm, I'm getting what, Chelsea Fife, I'm getting what you're saying, which is all about, 
we're here on this earth to grow. We're here to, to transform. And Chelsea Strayer, thank you for adding all that stuff as a as a father here. I'm, I was wanting to cheer and, and keep popping because truly nothing in my life has broken my heart open and, like I said, laid my soul bare or took my, my heart out of my chest and <laughs> invested it into somebody else the way fatherhood has. And Jennifer, you brought in the great point about, you know, we have to be forced down these roads of self-transformation sometime and, and, and certainly children are doing it. But then and you really did, I think, what we needed to have done in order to move into the next segment of the podcast, which is you said, let's take motherhood, fatherhood, parenthood, and separate it from the institution, the freezing in time and space and saying, this is what it is, and this is what is the ideal, and this is how you measure yourself, all that stuff. That's the framing that I that I sense we're going to have the most in-depth conversation about in this podcast. So let's if if everyone's okay let's let's focus there on that institutionalization of motherhood and how it's taught within the church how it's places these burdens like you said Chelsea from some of the notes you have of guilt in some people because apparently the outcome of their mothering hadn't lived up to this ideal that's imposed from outside so anyway all those different things so if we if we can do the institution of it does anyone have a a way that they would like to dive in and, and really say, we love the church, but here's some, here's some messages that I would love to see nuanced differently. I, I think that, again, I'm, I'm using a lot of the feminist critiques um, as I think about this, but I think one of the issues is in patriarchy that women's roles are, need to be defined, meaning we call something very natural, which is nurturing, and the desire to take care of others and so on. And we talk about it a lot in the church as being natural, and yet there is an intense focus on defining it and shaping it and handing it to women, right? And you don't, uh, maleness or manhood doesn't need to be defined. It just is, right? But womanhood is chronically in need of definition and shaping at the same time that we're calling it natural, and I think that is very much how the institution of motherhood is created. So I do think there's a lot of focus in the young women's manuals and in conference talks on this very divine and God-given tendency that we as women and girls have, which is to nurture, take care of others, and this sort of intrinsic desire we have to be mothers. I'm not denying that there, that, that many of us don't want to be mothers and that we don't even enjoy nurturing, but I think it's the way in which we link it so tightly with femininity and womanhood that's the problem. Yes. I don't know if other people have thoughts, but yeah. yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. I love it. I, I do too. And, and I actually, as you were saying that, I pulled up a quote that I think illustrates this perfectly. And this is out of the Young Women Manual uh, 1, Lesson 8, Attitudes About Our Divine Roles. And I'll just read it. It says, explain that if we believe that life as a wife and mother is routine and boring, it will be. But if we can understand our divine purposes and realize the great potential we have, our role will take on greater meaning than any other task in this world. By cheerfully and enthusiastically supporting our husbands and by bearing, nurturing, and teaching righteous spirits, we can experience the greatest fulfillment. And I think that speaks a bit to what Jennifer is saying because this one little piece from the Young Women's Manual packs a lot of punch. It tells women what their 
what they need to do, where they're going to find happiness, and if they'll just have a good attitude in doing it, then they'll be successful in those roles. It doesn't leave a whole lot of room for women and girls to define what motherhood looks like for them, to define what being a a partner and a spouse looks like for them. It doesn't give them a lot of leeway to express the way they feel about it. You know, we're not all great at every role that we engage in. You know, I have some women who are phenomenal, I have friends rather, who are phenomenal mothers. I mean, they are just such natural, good wonderful mothers. And then I have other friends who struggle with motherhood. It's, it's, it doesn't come easily for them. It's, it's hard for them. But there's this level of guilt and anxiety built in because they recognize that it's hard for them to be a mother, yet there's no safe place to express that or find support in that because if they were to do that, they would feel like they weren't fulfilling this divine calling. They weren't doing it correctly. They weren't being worthy of this noble expectation that the Lord's given them. So there's kind of, there's, there's some conflict built into this. And I, I really like how you define that and talk about that, Jennifer. That's a good direction for us to go, I think. You know, I think that part of the problem, and I remember as a young woman really feeling at once, like, I really wanted to be what all the men wanted me to be because I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be desirable and I wanted to be wanted by someone, which I think was also being taught to me as being important that, you know, to be worthy and be loved by a man down the road is kind of, it's a big deal because being a wife is a big deal. But then through your ability to be nurturing and be a mother and have this great attitude that you're talking about, I just remember feeling a lot of that the intensity of that message coming to me as a young woman and being a bit ambivalent about it because on the one hand, I really wanted to to please everyone and I wanted to be loved, you know, but I also felt like there was a duality in the message. Like if it really was so great, why weren't the men doing it? I remember thinking that, you know, like it does feel like I'm being asked to be in a subservient role and yet I'm also being told if I'm not, that I'm somehow not legitimate. And it's a, it's, a, it's a troubling message, I think, to receive. And one that I struggled with quite a bit as I went into college. I, I knew I wanted to be an at-home mother because my mother was that. And she was so significant for me. And yet I didn't want to feel like I was expected to do it or that I had no value if I didn't choose it. There's a way in which, because it was being defined as what it is to be female and what it is to be legitimate, it sort of robs you of the sense of a choice. And I think that's really clear in these messages. Like, let me see if I can find this one. This is one that I quoted in my dissertation that was in a conference talk by Elder Scott in 1996, in October of 96. And he, you know, is really honoring women in the talk. He's talking about all the sacrifices that they make for their husbands and for their children and how men really make no such sacrifice, not to the same degree. You know, it says the blessing of nurturing, there's a lot here, I'll just read the end of the quote, but the blessing of nurturing children and caring for a husband often is intermingled with many routine tasks, but you do all of these things willingly because you are a woman. And Mm -hmm. that while that's a very, you know, I didn't read the entire Uh, you know, part of his talk, but he's really trying to honor women for all the nurturing and the self-sacrifice and the willingness to go along and go live wherever their husband gets a job and to take his name and so on. 
But I think it's complicated when you say, but you do all these things willingly because you are a woman, is a way of saying, if you are really a woman and you are legitimate, right. you will do all these things willingly. <laughs> right, right. And if you yeah. have questions right. about it, <laughs> and exactly. if you have doubts about it, you obviously aren't at the same level right. um, as the women or who do it, it willingly. It takes away all of the hard work and the and the yeah. frustration and the pain sure. and the choice and, that you make. Because if it's a natural thing, then it takes no effort. Right. And that's what I felt a lot is, no, this is a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice. Jennifer, I had a very similar story. I remember I was in college and I was dating someone very seriously. And as we were approaching kind of the engagement talks, I would have these horrific dreams of feeling completely trapped. Again, I was only 19, and so for me to have to be dealing with that decision at that age is quite quite interesting in our culture, but I remember just feeling extraordinarily trapped, and the advice I would seek out when I would go to my bishop, I went to a college bishop and I went to my home bishop, and both bishops didn't encourage me to go or listen to my feelings or listen to my prayers or, hey, you're feeling anxious about this, maybe it's not right. Every single one of them said, of course you should get married. I feel like you should get married. Marriage is the only, the most important thing you can ever do with your life. And, and I went through a period of just really struggling with what is my personal revelation on this issue? What about my leaders and the men around me, including my, my then boyfriend, telling me what I should be thinking or feeling and that if I didn't make that choice, I was somehow rejecting motherhood or children, even though really I was just rejecting that particular proposal. Do you know what I mean? And I remember after I was able to break that relationship up, I I really, for, for a matter of about three years, I was very afraid of dating. I really did think I have to get all of my adventure and all of my education out because from what I've learned in Young Women's is, you know, once you get married, kind of your life ends and right. you become a mother and, you know, your importance is based on your children and I remember just like rushing to like rushing to travel the world and rushing to fit in as much education as possible and really feeling this idea that my life as Chelsea Shield stopped. Like my own pursuits, my own goals, my own dreams would mm -hmm. stop the minute I sat across that altar and that was yes. such a scary thought for me. Mm -hmm. Wow. You no, know, Chelsea, That's I had powerful. the exact same I had the exact same thing. It's really what my life story was about was I I wanted to get married and I wanted to have children, but I also really took the message to heart that once you do, if you're a good woman, you will basically give up your name, you'll give up your mm -hmm. wants and desires, you'll give up your goals and your dreams, mm -hmm. and you'll be subject to what his are. You'll be support staff for him. And I think that some of my friends felt like that was great, you know, no problem. But I grew up in a family where I felt like there were huge disadvantages for having no educational or economic power. And I just was deeply afraid of, of going into that position. And so, you know, it's really interesting the way I managed it. I managed it by basically kind of making myself romantically unavailable. So I could say, look, nobody's proposed. What else should I do but get a PhD? I really have no other thing to do in my life. What and the heck? Once I, was, <laughs> once I was accepted into a PhD program, now I could kind of say, well, now I can sort of be more serious about actually letting myself 
want and be wanted. And it really was a kind of unconscious strategy for me because now I could say I can legitimately sort of claim a life. I even purchased furniture, which is quite interesting, <laughs> because I was afraid that once I was married, I wouldn't have any economic power either. And those were a lot of anxieties that came out of my young women's lessons, honestly. Wow. That's interesting. It's interesting to hear both of your stories and experiences because mine is a little bit different. You know, I, I was raised in the church and I went through the young women's program as, you know, it's real similar. In fact, I wouldn't, I, it's probably almost exactly the same as it is now. Give a, a few changes. I had all the lessons about getting married in the temple and, you know, return missionary and being a mother. And I had a wonderful mother and, and that's, that's what I wanted. You know, education was important to me and, and the idea of having a career was exciting to me, but it was always kind of in the back of my mind that those would be things that would be secondary to having a family and being a mother, that my first choice uh, and my, my, my biggest desire would be to, a mother, to be a mother and, a, and, to be a, um, and to be a wife. And so I got married fairly young and had children fairly young. I had my first child at 24 and stayed home with her and, and started having more children and, and really living up to this Mormon ideal, this Mormon woman that I had taught was my destiny to be. And I found, in fact, I remember, I remember when my my husband was in graduate school at Northwestern and um, I had a a brand new baby. And I remember feeling really isolated and and really alone and feeling like this motherhood thing wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I can remember thinking, I just need to throw myself into service and into the gospel and fulfill my callings better. And so I would go visiting teaching and I would really work hard on my lessons and I would always let my visiting teachers come over when they came over. But there was just this longing in me that something felt imbalanced. It felt imbalanced. And I, you know, had my second child and I started to notice that the times um, in my life when I was feeling the most balanced, when I was feeling the happiest as a mother, were the times when I had interests and responsibilities and focuses that were mine and mine alone. When I had, for instance, a job and work that that was solely my choice, my decision, what I decided to do, I suddenly found balance. When I had callings, when I had big callings that took me out of the home that I was responsible for, that I had to carve time out for, that I had to use my, ma- my brain and my mind to create a plan to, to be efficient and effective, those were times when I felt balanced. And I suddenly started to see that balance for me as a woman and as an individual came from having many roles at once that were defining me and not just one because when everything was focused on my kids and and motherhood there was this sense of isolation and so my experience and my kind of aha and my uh, you know kind of philosophy on motherhood and and individuality came through the experience of feeling imbalanced and looking deep within to try to figure out what was missing and what needed where where the course correction was necessary so it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast our stories. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting about all three stories is each one of us has had to kind of go it alone. Each one of us has had to kind of have this moment of struggle and crisis and figure out our own position on motherhood. And I think Jennifer really did hit the nail on the head when she was saying, because womanhood and motherhood is so defined, often we think, well, there it is. I just have to either accept it and enjoy it or else I'm bad. 
And I think we don't see that with men. And I think we have a lot of examples here of it being defined on A, what we should do, and then B, how we should be feeling while we're doing it. But similarly, mm-hmm. I think we do it to ourselves sometimes. I look at the proclamation of the family, and I actually have a lot of people who are bold enough, and I welcome it, to ask my husband and I, well, how do you guys run your family this way? It's not. It doesn't say that in the proclamation. How do you justify being a working or a part-time working mom or whatever? It, it doesn't say that in the proclamation. And I often will just say, well, if you read the proclamation, it tells you what your primary focus should be. But it doesn't tell you how to do it. Similarly, it says men should focus on their primary responsibilities being to provide and nurse, um, sorry, preside and provide. But it doesn't tell them how. It doesn't tell them to all go be dentists, lawyers, or businessmen. Those are not the three options men have in the world, you know? And yet, us as mothers sometimes feel like we really only have one option is to be a stay at home mom, and any derivation of that is good, better, or best. We're, we're the good. Or we're the better, but it's not the best if we're mm-hmm. any derivation of that. And I think that that's kind of the problem here is when you define things so narrowly with the broad variation that takes place within a gender and between genders, it just becomes a matter of women feeling like they never fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. And I think because womanhood is so linked to nurturing and taking care of other people, not as just being a daughter of God who can express herself and her talents in a multitude of ways, who can develop into a whole person who both knows how to work hard and knows how to love well and who has creativity. And, you know, we don't talk about womanhood in that way. And so I think that, you know, I have a lot of women come into my office, LDS women, uh, and come into my office as clients with so much of a of, of a narrative of should in their heads, what they should feel, mm-hmm. what they should be doing, how they should orient to their feelings about their husband being the bishop or, you know, it's, and it's so much about I'm trying to be right by God and by my community, but it, the reference is so external. It isn't within myself. Who am I? What am I about? What do I want to be on this planet? What kind of parent do I want to be? Where do I want to use my talents? It doesn't feel choice-based to me. It feels, for the people struggling anyway, very much focused on how can I be what I've been told I'm supposed to be when I'm so miserable doing it often. And it's just not about being a whole person. It's really not what we're teaching women, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that's interesting because I think... At the crux of the dialogue that we're having, I hope the purpose, or I hope the outcome will be that all of us will seriously consider the way that we are teaching our, our daughters and our children doctrinal truths, eternal truths. Because we all agree that motherhood is valuable, that the roles that we all choose to take part in within a family are valuable and important. That is a truth that I think we all subscribe to. It's just the vehicle by which we're delivering this, this truth that's problematic. Yeah. And, and so while it's, it's interesting and really helpful and beneficial to pull it apart and find examples of how it's not working and how the outcomes are turning out negatively, really at the end of the day, 
we have this beautiful message of Jesus Christ, which is that we can all grow and become like him and live forever in peace and perfectness. <laughs> That's a beautiful message. And we just need to refine the way we're delivering it. So how do we do that? I think what we're talking about here is we need to shift the definition of woman from being synonymous with motherhood and femininity and the roles we take, shift that definition to women are individuals. They are inherently valuable and intrinsically divine. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how we, how we do that, but I see very clearly that it's in the delivery. That's, that's where the problem is. It's in the delivery. You know, I think so much of being an individual is having a sense of having a voice and that who you are, that you get to define yourself, not be defined. And I think that we, we spend so much energy defining girls and women, and we are anxious about letting them define themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really about the authority structure in the church, you know. Mm-hmm. It's really about the way that we, what we think of sort of legitimate discourse and legitimate uh, ways of being in the world. And I think we really teach girls and women to please and to give of themselves as a way to demonstrate their value. Like mm-hmm. another quote just in front of me in Elder Scott's talk, the same one that I quoted earlier, was he's talking about pioneer women and, and the great sacrifices that they made out of their faith and their obedience. And he says, no sacrifice was too great for them to make for their precious husbands and children. And, you know, I respect it. I respect the sacrifices that we all make. The only thing is for me that's hard about a statement like that is it's really setting it up as an example of what a woman needs to be. Now, Mm -hmm. I think that sacrifice is a wonderful thing. It really is. Like, I don't, Sacrifice happens all the time in good marriages and in good parenting. But in my opinion, sacrifice is not good if it promotes one person and it devalues the person doing it, if it undermines your strength for someone else's strength. And I think we teach girls to do that, perhaps inadvertently, that basically you devalue yourself and you value the, the roles and the things that the men and your children are doing and mm-hmm. you sort of throw yourself under the bus. It's a way of saying, you know, my needs should not matter. My feelings, my wants should take the back seat. And I'm not saying you can't ever consciously say, I'm going to put this want aside for this bigger, more important desire that I have for my family or my kids. Mm-hmm. Certainly we can do that. But there's this way in which we have institutionalized becoming needless, wantless women if we're good. And I think that undermines our strength profoundly. And it undermines our clarity and our wisdom. And I think it's a huge disservice to do that to women who are mothering all of these children. We don't teach women to be genuinely strong. We teach us, I think we have a much stronger message of compliance. Beautiful. That is awesome, and that really, wow. that really came out in your podcast interview with Natasha on the pleasing mm-hmm. pleasing guys and putting yourself in a situation where you're not at choice in in the amount of sexual activity that you involve yourself mm-hmm. with and things like that. So that was powerful mm-hmm. to to hear that again and think about that, but to hear it fresh in this context. So thank you very much. Wow. Yeah, Jennifer, I was just going to add to that that I think 
it was a brilliant comment, by the way. But um, one of the things that really helped me as we're preparing, as Chelsea's trying to get us to think, well, what can we do? How can we teach this? Was when I was in a ward with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich of the well-behaved women seldom make history fame. And mm-hmm. we were talking about this, about motherhood, about womanhood, about life. And she really just kind of stopped me in my earnest over-eagerness of an early graduate student and kind of said, life is really long. And we sat down and we talked about all the period of time that a woman goes through before she becomes a mother. And then she's talking to me as this older woman, all of her kids raised and having kids of their own, and looking at me saying, and life is really long after you have children. Of course you're always a mother. But the time period of having young, needy, dependent children is a relatively short period of time in the entire spectrum of your life. And here's a woman who went back and got her PhD after five children and went on to win Pulitzer Prizes and is an award-winning professor at Harvard University. So she's, And she t- just taught me a great lesson that day of the idea that we can't teach that womanhood is next to motherhood because motherhood, intensive motherhood, is a time period in someone's life. And we mm-hmm. don't want women to raise their children and then say, okay, do I just push pause until I die? I mean, what right. is next? If motherhood's the only goal, what happens when your kids are raped? Absolutely. There's, there's actually research that shows that women have more acute menopause symptoms when they have their sense of identity more wrapped up in being a full-time parent. So when their sense of self is really wrapped around the lives of their children and they don't have a sense of self independent of that, that they actually have physically stronger negative menopausal symptoms. So I just think that's interesting research. Wow. Very good. You guys are killing me. This is, this is too, too great. Well, where do we want to go next? Well, I think the question of choice might be a good place to go next. But go ahead. Go ahead, Chelsea. Do you have a thought? No, I, I do want to talk about the question of choice. But I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time really trying to kind of brainstorm and offer suggestions of how, really, how do we change this? I mean, mm-hmm. really, really, okay. truly. I mean, we're, <laughs> how do we change this? How do we make a difference tomorrow when the kids get up and get out of bed and they're getting ready for school, what do I do tomorrow to kind of balance out this message that they're getting that's causing problems? So we could talk about choice and then, and then let's get into some real clear ideas of how we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. So uh, somebody do the choice. And I know that one of the things that came up in our conversation beforehand was the lack of choice and depression matrix, sort of there's mm-hmm. some sort of connection Jennifer, you were, you seem to be the one that I think started at least that conversation. Do you mind framing framing that for us? At least that I'm sure it's not exactly a direct line, but it's it's certainly one of the factors that I think you identified in in depression is when women mm-hmm. don't feel fully at choice in the roles that they're in. Yeah, well, right. I think you know there was some research done a couple of years ago that showed that. Um, that the antidepressant prescription rate was the highest in Utah and. That was very interesting research for me because thinking a lot about do we as Mormon women struggle more with depression than the general population, in many ways I would think we shouldn't because we have such a network of support. But in my experience as a clinician, I also experience a great deal of sense, as I referenced earlier, to this idea that people feel like they're never quite enough, that they're never 
living up to these very high ideals and expectations to the degree that they believe they should. And there's always this sense of kind of, as I think I said earlier, this sort of external reference of what I'm supposed to be and yet I never ever am. And I think it's a very depressing construct of oneself or how to understand oneself because you're never adequate. You're never sufficient and you never really feel in control of yourself. The locus of control is always outside of yourself. You're always trying to please an ideal that exists outside of you rather than a self-reference, which is around who am I and what do I want to be about and what would I like my life to be? It, it kind of flies in the face of a real deep self-acceptance that I think is antithetical to depression. So I think both the idealism and the selflessness are very much linked to depression. And I also think that same idealism and selflessness is very much linked to our feelings of having no legitimate choices. It's like, well, you have a choice, but there's, it's only one right one. <laughs> and hopefully you'll make it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that when women feel like they're making alternative choices to the sort of standard way of being a mother, getting married early, having children right away. You know, if I sort of think of what sort of the, the sort of dominant narrative is of what an LDS woman should be, that oftentimes people feel like they're somehow being less than rather than taking, you know, a legitimate alternative path. And so I really think that idea of choice is essential in self-definition. I think we define ourselves through desire and we define ourselves through choice. And as LDS women, I think we're anxious about both of those things. And it's really how we exercise our autonomy and our agency as we make choices and we demonstrate to ourselves and to the world what we're about and what we want, not a compliance framework. So I think in motherhood, when I think women feel like they're doing it because they must, I think the incidence of depression is much higher. I don't know, I could tell my own story briefly. I know that, to, let me say a couple pieces. One is I really knew I wanted to be a full-time parent. And when I had to do my internship towards the end of my PhD program, I had a one-year-old at that point, it was really hard for me to go to work <laughs> for that year. But I really had to do it in order to finish my degree. And so my husband worked part-time from home, and he stayed home. At the end of that year, he was laid off, and so we were both jobless. And it was really important and, and powerful for me that he really would have been totally happy with me going to work and him being home because he enjoyed it so much, being home with our son. And, you know, here where I'd grown up with this idea that the power was sort of to go out and work. Here I really was married to someone who really was like, the privilege is really getting to stay home and do this. <laughs> and so we kind of, you know, fought, quote unquote, about who, who was going to be the one to stay home. And I won, but, <laughs> uh, but I guess that was important to me because it felt like, you know, there really was the legitimate valuing of it in the marriage. I think that when I, we both started looking for jobs and I was offered a professorship position and I decided not to take it because John was also offered a job at similar timing and I decided I really wanted to be home. And I, my oldest child had just been diagnosed with autism and I had just had a second child. And 
it was extremely hard at times, meaning I had a newborn baby and I had a child who was literally banging his head against the wall. And it was so hard to go to the grocery store, to get a shower. It was hard work. And yet I think that it was so clear to me that I had made the choice to be there and that I had other choices that I think that's really why I didn't get depressed around pretty challenging circumstances is that I really knew at every moment that I could turn that over to someone else, but I really didn't want to. And as hard as it was, I knew I was the one that wanted to be there. And so even though my life completely lacked balance during that time, I was doing nothing else other than learning all I could about autism and what I could do to help him <laughs> and feeling quite powerless, frankly, most of the time to really give him whatever could help him. I still felt clear that it's where I wanted to be and where I wanted to be putting my energy. And I think that clarity was very helpful for not feeling like I had to be there. If I was a good woman, I would be there, that the world was happening outside of here and I couldn't be a part of it. I knew this is as hard as it was where I wanted to be. And I just think that's something that women who enter into motherhood out of compliance, even if that's exactly where they'd be had they felt the choice, aren't sure what they would have chosen if they had their cho uh, choices freely given to them, if they had the options freely before them. And I think that really robs them of a kind of clarity that is really critical around such hard work. I'm so glad you shared that. I, I think that's a really valuable story. I think that's interesting. In the, and while you were telling us that story, it all I could think about was, you know, the, the scripture stories and the primary stories where we talk about the, being in heaven and having the choice to come to earth or not come to earth, mm. knowing that the ultimate goal was to return to Heavenly Father and one plan would ensure that we did and the other plan was maybe a little dicey. The potential was there, but it was our, but it was our choice. I think that is a, a really, really strong parallel. That, that, that was an excellent point, Jennifer. Yeah, I thought so too. Thank you so much for sharing. Anything else on the choice, mental health, self-esteem, you know, whatever it would be? I had something on the mental health on stressors. A lot of my research is built around stress and how people deal with stress, what produces and activates stress and how people deal with those cross-culturally. And one of the leading researchers on stress right now, um, Robert Sapolsky, created a five points of individuals who are more likely to produce a stress response and more at risk for stress-sensitive diseases, which women are. And I want to read the five points, and then afterwards I want you to um, put the word kids every time it says stressor, and I think this fits <laughs> quite well. <laughs> okay, so number one, feel that they have little control over stressors or are cro chronically disempowered. Two, feel that they do not have a predictive information about how long or how in intense that stressor will be. Three, do not have many outlets to vent frustration caused by stressors. Four, interpret the stressor as a sign of worsening circumstance. And five, do not have adequate social support for the confinement caused by the stressor. And I think if we really look at those, they kind of fit Mormon women's issues with motherhood and struggling and depression and and feeling like there's no one to talk to, feeling like they don't necessarily have control over their reproductive situation. I actually know quite a few women here in the States and abroad who feel like they don't have control over when they get pregnant if they're being a good Mormon woman or how often. And I think that changes the entire circumstance of what we're talking about. If we begin to talk about cultures 
and of women who don't have reproductive control, you know, and aren't choosing each individual kid or how far they're spaced. And I think that, that a lot of what we're talking about deals with these stressors and it is something that needs to be um, addressed. And I think with Chelsea Fife has a really good point of, well, what can we do? I mean, I hate listening to things or watching things where I le- end and say, well, what can we do, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I've always thought is, it's been curious to me that the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. I hear all the time how great motherhood is and all of our leaders are supportive of us. I really do think that they are. But where's the money in the sense of why don't we have training programs or mother support centers or some type of motherhood-centered programs within the church available to mothers? Or I I know in a lot of cultures, there's ways that mothers work with children and create their own daycare systems, maybe just a trade once a week or something like that. Because in our own culture in America, often women feel like this job of motherhood is individual and isolating. Whereas in other cultures, you co-parent. And in other species, quite frankly, with primates I work with, you co-parent, meaning you live in a compound. Or, and this is even characteristic of early polygamous um, mm-hmm. relationships and families at the turn of the century. So as co-parenting, it allows you to have those moments of feeling your goal or your talent or whatever and having people you know who love your children and who parent the same way as you and your children being with kids that they enjoy. And it just creates a totally different situation than the type of American individual-centered parenting and motherhood that we tend to think of as the ideal. I, l- I love that. And all I keep kept thinking when you were saying that is we already have like the perfect structure already erected and set up, and it's called visiting teaching. The problem is, and the reason that maybe we're not functioning in visiting teaching to the capacity that it's capable is that we're so afraid of talking about this We're so afraid of challenging the system in the way that it's always been that we just kind of robotically go through the motions of visiting teaching or whatever it is. But we already have the the construct there to have avenues of support and help and mentoring and co-parenting. But I think the pivotal point there is our willingness to discuss these topics and our willingness to teach one another and our willingness to really challenge the way we're doing it and look for better ways. But I I think we already have the possibility to start into something beautiful like that through our visiting teaching programs. Yeah, and I think, you know, Chelsea um, Shields, Strayer, what you were saying earlier, I think at the turn of the century, I think it's really true that you know, polygamous families and the way that, you know, the culture, the society was much more interdependent. And so a lot of this idealism around motherhood is happening in isolation, you know, that as you're saying, it's it's much more, families really don't even live close by. It's It's unusual to have your mother live down the street now, where it used to be that families were closer together and could support one another more. And so I think be phenomenal and wonderful if there were ways in which the actual ward family could support mothering in a more systemic way, you know, whether through visiting teaching or other programs that where it was really truly more shared and actually relieving some of the burden of parenting in isolation that so many women manage. 
if if I can jump in for a second here, one of the the thoughts that had been going in my head the last twenty minutes or something, especially as we kind of hinted that we'd get to these how do we change things sort of thing, and 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 I'm really glad with what you've both have just said because my my thought was, okay, if it comes from feminist theory, if it comes from academia, if it's, you know, you as PhDs and, you know, professional women, Chelsea, Fife, and, and if it comes from you that, that you're imposing this, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to, you know, it's, it's going to feel false to stuff. But the more organic stuff that's within Mormonism, this past history, mm-hmm. you know, the, this way of looking at our, the long-term, uh, you know, different ways roles of instructors, have, I really think that's the place to go, to look at, at organizations, things that we do. Because anything, you, when you come out at folks with critiques that sound like they're mm-hmm. originating in egghead stuff, it's mm-hmm. not going to work. So I'm really, I want to encourage you. What else do we got? Come on. <laughs> How we do it? And first of all, Chelsea, one of the things that Chelsea Strayer, I wanted to hear you, you mentioned kind of in the early going that you and your husband co-parent and you're more deliberate about this than than probably just accident <laughs> accidentally. So, I mean, maybe you could share that and how that goes across and how people are reacting. Are, is it feeling natural to them or is it really just those crazy eggheads? <laughs> um, well, we did a lot of research before we um, had our child and we were very consciously, we try to do conscious parenting, which is we try to do the research and figure out what's best and then implement that. And one of the things is with equal parenting is not necessarily a system of, okay, we have to split every, and what people assume it is, we have to split every single task into 50-50. Um, it's not that at all. It's what do you do well? What do I do well? How can we highlight those? And how can I, A, trust, and B, kind of rely on those skills that you can bring and provide as a as a father and how can I be really good at the things that I can provide and it was really hard it's taken a while I know my daughter's only 18 months so I'm sure people with older kids are kind of laughing at me now I know that's what's happening (laughs) but in in starting equal parenting you do you have a lot of bumps in the road and I actually have a lot of women who have come to us and asked us a lot of questions and I think one of the main things that I that I think most women should know about equal parenting is often because motherhood is so defined in our culture, there's a pride with that. There's a pride that my child wants to come to me for comfort and not run to dad. Or there's a pride and a joy that comes from me knowing how to pack the diaper bag. And from me knowing, come on, don't you know she's supposed to wear these shoes and not these ones? And don't you know? And kind of having, um, yes. what's the word, like a cap on the information, right? Like, mm. there's a certain sort of, like, I feel like I'm a good mother because I know more than him about mothering, you know? <laughs> and I think one of the hardest things for me in really learning how to be an equal parenting and allowing my husband to be an equal partner in this was that I had two choices. I could have the control or I could have the equality, but I could not have both. Wow. I could not say to my husband, hey, here's her outfit. Here's what you feed her. Here's what to do. And we had serious conversations about this and did a lot of research that oftentimes it's not the men who are not willing. Mm-hmm. It's the women who are not willing to let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of that is personal and part of that is societal. For example... When we have our in-laws come to town and it's his day at home, 
I stress because I have to get the sheets washed and the linens and all the food ready. And he says, no, 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 I'll take care of it. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, the problem is if you get mismatching <laughs> sheets or you forget right. to do something, they are not going to blame you. They're going to blame me. Yeah. So, I can relate to that. Forget, right? yeah, if you forget to bring your kids, you know, soccer snacks or the bake sale food, they are not going to be looking at you, you know? So I think part of that is societal and that that will have to change. But equally, and that's the burden of the woman who does equal parenting, but the burden of the father who does equal parenting is no matter where my husband goes, no matter what he does, people are very complimentary. Wow, you're such a good dad. And he says, because I'm holding my kid or because I can (laughs) do it myself, you know. But on the other side, he is constantly getting people telling him how to parent that he doesn't necessarily um, own it, that people are telling him, well, wait, you're supposed to be doing this, you're supposed to be doing this. Oh, have you tried this? And he thinks, why are people constantly second-guessing me? I've put in the work, I've put in the time. And so I think on both sides, both genders have to deal with kind of stereotypical roles that affect equal parenting. And within the church, it gets even harder because I think, you know, lessons where men's fulfillment of their priesthood are based on providing and and these sort of masculine roles it sometimes feels like you have to apologize for um making fatherhood be your preeminent role i think thank you so much that was completely cool i loved hearing that and i admire you guys and it's neat that folks are are watching and you're sh- you're showing it and i remember um my wife always seemed to have we both were working and her job's she she seemed to always start earlier than me, so I was the one that got the kids off to school. And I there was that point where we had our rhythm, man. We were we were in it. And then whenever she was home, for some reason, it just got all screwed up. But it was like, I own this part. So uh, I I, I, I kind of recognize just little pieces of that in there. And and those are those are the those are what we do as human beings. So uh, that's wonderful. Um, anything else about just. We're not here just to critique. We're here to share experience and, and to ask the questions, and especially in ways that can really be effective. So anybody else with just thoughts, especially ones that might come out of either gospel principles or well-recognized things from the Mormon tradition or, or whatever that can really uh, be expanded and, and jumped upon? Anyone with with a thought? Well, I have a thought. I think, you know, just uh, to comment first on Chelsea Shields Strayer's uh, story, I think it's really true because if we if we really wrap ourselves in the identity of mother as women, even though we may feel overwhelmed, we may be very reluctant to actually share that because it's really through that vehicle that we prove ourselves. Like I have a friend, they have the economic means for her to hire help. But I think it feels like a failure, even though she's extremely busy because her husband's in a busy calling and a busy job and they have multiple children. She doesn't want to afford herself that latitude or that freedom because it feels like she's somehow less than. And so I think that even though we can feel overwhelmed, we don't really feel like it's okay to actually have help. And so I think that even if we were to think about institutional ways in which we could support mothering and families, I think when your sense of self is wrapped up in one role, you're going to have a harder time letting go of that, um, even if it's painful or difficult. I, I think if I had another thought about 
what we change in the church, I think maybe it's not very concrete, but I think culturally we need to be less anxious about women's strength, women's real strength and women's um, autonomy. I remember my mom saying to me once when I was sort of questioning the whole, you know, male leadership model in marriage in particular, and she was saying, but I don't think marriages would work unless you have a leader in the marriage. And I think that's really an idea that's pretty strong in the church, that you need male leadership and female subservience. And can't women also be strong in their own right and have many choices available to them through being women and to express motherhood in many different ways and to have their sense of self be broader than just mothering. I think it would help both the women who are mothering and the women who aren't fortunate enough to be mothers or who have chosen a different path or don't have those same options. So it's more in the way that what I would change institutionally is our Young Women's Manual. (laughs) Um, Yes, yes. You know, to be a little bit broader and to be more recognizing of the strengths, the talents, and the variation within that group. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think I've thought about this a lot in the last few months. How do, I, how do I keep my daughters from growing up and being indoctrinated that the expectations are A, B, C, and D? How, how do I protect them from kind of the underlying messages that are negative uh, that are kind of baked into some of the really good m- messages that they hear. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I've kind of come to the conclusion that, for me at least, the best way to have an effect on my daughters tomorrow is to go and reach out to the leaders and the other women that are helping me raise them. And I say women because I think women sometimes are the the biggest perpetrators of good and also sometimes the biggest perpetrators of of bad without even realizing it. And so to reach out to the women who are helping me raise my children and have these kind of conversations with them. And I've noticed as I've had these kind of dialogues and I've been really careful about how I approach them so that I'm not threatening the notion that motherhood is important or plays in, you know, has a big impact. This rings true to women. Women can look at their own experiences and identify that they are more than the roles they fulfill. Many times women feel it, but they don't know how to articulate it. They don't know what it is that they're sensing that is making them feel imbalanced. Going back to my own experience of being a young wife and a young mother, recognizing that something wasn't quite right, this wasn't how I was told it was going to be, but not being able to identify exactly why that was the case. Many women walk around every day just like that, and it's just a matter of having a conversation that will really turn the light on. And so as much as I'm with you, Jennifer, I would love to see a whole new slew of young women's manuals and Relief Society manuals for that matter. I don't know that that's going to happen tomorrow or next Mm -hmm. week, but the women who are teaching from those manuals, the women who are forming the sentences and and pulling the scriptures out and reading the quotes... Those women, even within our theology, have the autonomy, if you will, and the permission and the right within their callings to interact with the Holy Ghost and create lessons through the Spirit to best teach 
our daughters. So when they're armed with this information that maybe there's a better way and here's a suggestion, I found that most women accept that and really want to embrace it. Awesome. That's great. Just relating this back to the scriptures, Chelsea Fife, I really love how you relate everything back to doctrine and scriptures, and I just really appreciate (laughs) that. And as we were talking, it kind of came across to me that an experience with the scriptures, and one of them is when I do field work, some of the most basic questions are actually sometimes the most telling. And one of the questions I ask in the city is, where's the bush? And the bush is in, in Ghana where I work, kind of like the people who are backward or the people who... You know, the people over there, they believe in witchcraft. And the people over there, they're backward. And it doesn't matter what town or what city or what village or what tiny, tiny mud hut I see. If I ask that question, people always said, oh, it's the other people. It's the people down the road. So I'll go from city of 4 million to a town of 100,000 to a small village of 10,000 to an even smaller village of 500 and no matter what it's the other village that's the bush and I think we do that sometimes in the church I think when we read our scriptures and we hear traditions of our fathers and kind of the idea of well that's other people other people are following the traditions of their fathers and not you know asking of God himself or not receiving personal revelation etc we always assume it's the other people it's the Lamanites following the traditions of their fathers not us And I think that that became very clear as you were talking, that there's absolutely nothing in our scriptures, if you really look at them, to validate necessarily that women are only on this earth to be mothers, or that, you know, kind of the the ideological um, trap that we think that we are supposed to be. And of course there's elements, I'm not critiquing that at all, but I think sometimes we do rely a little too much on the traditions of our fathers rather than going out and finding for ourselves. And, uh, you know, I, I actually brought this up in my uh, interview with Natasha Helfer Parker, but just to bring it up again, thinking about some of the resources we have as members of the church, one of the women that I interviewed was a very strong member of the church, and yet she and her husband had worked out a very non-traditional arrangement with respect to careers and children. And she was much more educated. No, she wasn't much more educated, but she had more education than she he did and was more able to make money than he was. And at every point along the way in that path of her many years of education, they would pray and fast at every decision point. And they both felt impressed that she should keep going, even though sometimes it was hard for her to have her husband be the one taking care of the young children, but they really felt clear that this is what God wanted for them. And so here they really were using the prayer and fasting and personal revelation and choosing a path that really was the best expression of who this couple was, in my opinion. It worked very well for them, you know, and And yet it was really counter to what most people on the outside might judge as appropriate choices for a family. And yet they, they, they felt total confidence that they were doing what was right for them. And so I, I love that story because it's using so often where we go is sort of what is the authoritative discourse and what's it telling me about who I should be. And we neglect the other teaching that we have that's very powerful, which is we have personal revelation as a, a way of really knowing what's right for us. And there can be tremendous variation within that. 
Awesome. And, you know, Chelsea Strayer, when you mentioned Chelsea Fife's strength and always bringing it back to the scriptures and the gospel and the the higher ideals and stuff, that reminded me a little bit of our pre-discussion about when it comes to the actual scriptures, what's there about motherhood is the purpose of womanhood, that it is the highest, etc. And And we kind of, didn't we all kind of come to a consensus that in many ways it is this institution of motherhood. It is the culture that's created this, and it's not the scriptures. The scriptures are where Chelsea is focusing us, which is grow, (laughs) transform, rough edges, break open your heart. It's all those different things. Become, you know, the way a loving being and an an open being like God, rather than these other things. So I'm really thrilled that you reminded us of that. So thank you. (laughs) What else is left to be said? We've talked a lot, but I, I know that there's more. So uh, who, who, who's left something on their list? Hmm. I guess I could add to what we can do, as, I guess, as an anthropologist. I think one of the things, I kind of mentioned this with co-parenting and why don't we work together as women more. But I thought of that with um, when I was having my baby shower and everyone was asking, oh, what do you want? And we were focused on, you know, decorations and desserts. And I really thought the best moments that have prepared me to be pregnant and have prepared me for childbirth, the act of giving birth, which was extraordinarily difficult and an extraordinarily transformative experience, were sitting around talking to my aunts and my cousins who had given birth and getting real information. Not kind of what we um, are supposed to say, but real information. And I said, can I really just get a big group of women together to tell me the truth? And they all kind of laughed, and and I thought, why is that something? I feel like we don't support these new, young mothers enough, and then we don't support mothers of special needs, and we don't support working mothers, and we don't, in a lot of ways that we as women could be extraordinary as women in the gospel, and we have these networks, we're failing. Women should not have to figure out how to be mothers. It's not necessarily natural, and I think that's the, the crux. Okay. If we think it's natural, then we don't reach out. And if we think it's natural, then we ourselves don't help others. And I think that we could do a, a lot in by way of helping young mothers, helping, you know, whether that's a resource guide or, or mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't have a solution. Absolutely. I just feel like we should be at the forefront of this and we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Chelsea Shieldstrayer, I, I think I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I feel like we have such a network in the church and Relief Society is such a, you know, it's this group of women who are all striving to be better people. And one of the ways in which I think that breaks down and why some people just hate going to Relief Society is because the discourse gets so narrow and so rigid because Mm -hmm. I think we often feel like there are right answers. And if your experience doesn't fit the right answer, then it's not worthy to be spoken rather than, more trust in the authenticity and the imperfection of our experiences and yes. more willingness to really open up to one another about who we really are. Mm-hmm. When I think we're afraid that it's somehow undermining our faith if we show that our lives don't meet the ideals rather than saying we're all falling short of the ideals and maybe we can actually reach past through our ideals out to one another and really support each other 
and in the struggles that we all face that are part of being human. I think one of the privileges I have as a therapist is I get to hear the other discourse <laughs> day after day after day, and I get to see how normal it is that we all struggle with self-doubt. We all struggle as parents. We struggle to know what it means to love. We struggle to know what it means to believe. And it's so universal. And yet sometimes when you sit in a church meeting, it feels as if everybody's got all the answers and they know exactly what they're doing. And it's just absolutely wrong. And so we have this opportunity to really support each other and our fear of judgment and our judgment even towards ourselves inhibits us from doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as, as much as I have experienced and felt exactly what you're describing, I've also witnessed many times and been in many Relief Society lessons where everybody seems to have all the right answers. Everybody's making all the perfect little, you know, responses. And then there will be one brave woman who mm -hmm. is honest and genuine and it's like the floodgates open. And yep. all yep. of a sudden, our conversation goes yep. from a very rigid, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, I got it all right kind of a discussion to a very Absolutely. meaningful, rich, healing, unifying discussion. And I, I feel like we can't emphasize enough that we have to be the change that we are looking for. We have to be the change that we are looking for. And, and so I love that you brought that up because the, the potential is there. And each of us, I think, has a responsibility just by the fact that we're talking about this, that we're aware of this. Each of us has the responsibility to be the change that we're longing for within the church. Yeah. So cool. Wow. Hey, can I uh, throw in my probably one of the formative moments of my life as I began to think about this and we can cut this if it doesn't work you guys so so <laughs> but I, be great. I most of you know I got my doctorate from Claremont and so I studied with Karen Jo Torgerson who's fairly well known uh, feminist circles you know she's a New Testament and patristic scholar but so she wrote when women were priests and things like that but she, I took the uh, a basic course in women's studies and religion or you know, feminist theory and religion and their interrelationship. And we did an exercise in one of the early classes that was just mind-opening to me, and I think it leads a lot to the institutionalization of feminism, uh, I mean, of motherhood that you were talking about, or, or you know, that women sort of exist as these these ideals, <laughs> you know, rather than flesh and blood people with, with all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and so basically the exercise was uh, to list on the board what are the... When you think of men, what are the usual qualities that you think of of men? And so, you know, everything from they're intellectual, they're physical, they are, uh, you know, analytic, you know, all these different things. So you, you put, a, you know, we probably had 15 or 20 things on, on the board. And then it was like, what are the characteristics of women? Oh, emotional, loving, caring, you know, more tied to, uh, you know, earthly things than, than, you know, intellectual things or whatever it was. And it was, it was truly interesting. We get these both there. And then the next move was, okay, when a guy is evolved or when a guy is, you know, a virtuous man, what is it that, that um, his qualities are? Or what do we look at these qualities? And guess what happened? Very quickly, it looked like evolved men were the basic bottom line, baseline descriptions of women. <laughs> the things that we expected women, you know, or what we said was the characteristics of women, mm -hmm. was the things that men get praised for. 
we get, you know, ooh, he's so evolved, he's so emotional, he's in touch with himself, and, you know, and, and, you know he's so present in the world instead of often the, the intellectual, you know, it was so, so interesting. And then the, the big million dollar question was, what makes a virtuous woman? And it was very, very hard to find those things that separated the expectation of what a woman wow. is with where Gosh. the next moves. Wow. And so it was like this wow. blow me away kind of thing. And, and somehow or other, I, I'm not quite, I know it relates to our discussion today, so maybe we could keep it in sure the podcast. But, but wow. I was just one of those eye openers of, you know, I get, it's so easy for me as a man to get strokes whenever I, you know, break the stereotype, but you guys are expected to be already at this Mm -hmm. higher level than us. And I think Mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever the critiques of patriarchy is, and and they kind of came up early in the podcast, motherhood and the way we've enthroned it, we've done it as men because it serves us. You guys are our support staff and you make life easier Mm -hmm. and you do the dirty work and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And those few of us who change the diaper too, man, look at the strokes we get for that. Woohoo. You know, we are, Mm -hmm. you know, where you guys, you guys don't get it. So, um, anyway, just let me throw, throw that, throw that in there. Absolutely. And just, again, just, you know, that women evolved are the same as what women are supposed to be if they're just being, feminine exactly speaks to the, the the kind of high expectations we carry for ourselves and how depressing that can be so you know absolutely i think that's a very interesting point cool hey who anything else that's on somebody's list otherwise we can bring this to a close and then of course i kind of expect this will explode on our blog so i'm excited for for, Ooh, for, the, for the comment section so uh <laughs> but is there anything that was on somebody's notes that, that we haven't had a chance to to dive into one other thought that i have kind of related to some of the things i've been saying earlier is that i think when women define themselves primarily as mothers and their sense of self is wrapped up in how successfully they raise those children, meaning as Chelsea Fife brought up in the beginning, you know, how, what kind of a mother and parent was I based on whether or not my child went on a mission, whether or not he believes in the church, whether or not, you know, he's been successful by some standard and that what it often does is that it creates a dependency within mothers on their children. You know, if I'm going to feel good about myself as a mother and as a woman, you need to be successful. You need to comply with what I believe is right for you. And so it can burden that relationship, I think, between mothers and children because their sense of self is wrapped up in what their kids do or don't do. And Mm -hmm. kids can often feel that pressure and can often feel that they're you know, even though they're the children, that somehow they're responsible for their mother's lack of selfhood, you know, outside of that relationship. So it can be challenging for the mothers because I think their their sense of self is walking around outside of them and they can't control it and can make them want to be controlling of their children because there's, you know, they're filtering their worth through what their child does or doesn't do. And, you know, I feel very strongly that learning how to be loving, capable parents is essential and critical to the health of society and to our individual psychological health and to the well-being of our families. But I don't think that that happens through self-sacrifice and through definition as motherhood. It happens through creating a more whole sense of self in who you are as a woman and as a person that 
allows you to really love and respect your child, give them all that you know to give them, and still respect the fact that they are agents to themselves and that they are going to make choices in life even if you give them everything you know to give them. So it's a way of liberating that relationship in a way. You know, what, what I often see in my clinical work is when a parent's sense of self is wrapped up in their child and their child is behaving in ways that are difficult, what happens is the parent's sense of failure starts to interfere with the relationship and then it actually inhibits their ability to do what would be most helpful for the child because they're so anxious about, they're not able to take a step back and think about what does this child need from me right now. They're so anxious about them making the wrong choices that they either try to control the child or they disengage as a way to protect from the disappointment. And neither of those things is helpful for the child, but is about the immaturity of the parent. So wow, um, that's that's big. That's deep. Wow. Yeah, the the whole idea of uh, what is a real relationship? It's one that there is no clear result in mind ahead of time. You know, you're in it. Mm-hmm. You're working yes. together, and there is no standard that says this must be met, and therefore I'm going to steer this relationship there. It's simply, it's risk, it's trust, it's being in it together, and and if you are are loved so authentically like that, you're going to end up being who you're supposed to be. Don't you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, at least that's, mm-hmm. how, that's how it makes sense. But you're, boy, you hit the nail on the head there, Jennifer. That was mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you. That was awesome. That was awesome. Anybody else with a, a final thought or two? You know, I think for me, I, I appreciate so much all the detail and the, the deeper context and understanding of, why we act the way we do, why we think the way we do, how the way we've been taught has created, you know, um, ideals of how we're supposed to act or be or teach. It's so fascinating to me. And at the end of the day, I just keep coming back to this idea that our daughters need to get the message that first and foremost, they are on this earth so that they can grow and change. And the very best way that I can teach that message to them is what I'm after. And so I, I really appreciate this dialogue about why we think the way we do because it allows me as a mother to better identify ways to teach my children because at the end of the day, I want them to make their own choices because they're trying to change themselves. I don't want them to make choices and enter into roles and relationships because they feel they have an obligation or because they feel like that's what's expected of them. So this has been really valuable for me as a, as a mother and as um, a, a woman who has leadership roles in different capacities in church. It's been really, really insightful, really good. I agree. Thank you. Chelsea S.? I also have just loved this conversation. I think the only thing that I would want to add is the idea that often I think that we teach motherhood as kind of like a role. And we hear that all the time, a role. And I think we associate that with like duty and that somehow motherhood is some kind of obligation or duty. And I think that if we can separate role and duty from blessing and joy and privilege it becomes a different thing. And I guess let me let me relate that to an experience because I don't know that I'm making enough sense. But 
before I was married, we had a lot of friends who were like, you need to get married. You need to get married. Let's set you up. Marriage is the greatest thing. And after we were married, we had a ton of friends saying, you need to have kids. You need to have kids. And it was kind of like this social pressure. You need to have kids right away. And we kept saying to ourselves, why all this pressure? The parents we know don't seem that happy. <laughs> we would see these parents all harried and like stressed and saying, oh, I remember before we had kids, you know, just yep. kind of like making the point that it's really hard. And and we were like kind of laughing to ourselves because we waited about four years and we got, we did get a lot of social pressure and we kind of would laugh if, if it's really that good. Why do people make it seem so horrible? <laughs> And so I think I would just communicate kind of, you know, if you read in Genesis, wait, sorry, wrong phrase, let me think. If you read in Moses after Eve and Adam left the Garden of Eden, one of the coolest points is when they say that they found joy and happiness. And I think we forget. We talk about the fall as like the fall and damnation and hard work and labor and evil. And and I think we forget that they found joy. And I think that the only thing I would add to this is, the most shocked I've ever been was how joyful and infatuated I was with this little child. And why was that? Coming from a church that praises motherhood constantly, how could I possibly have been surprised? And I don't know the solution to that answer other than, you know, an answer for Chelsea Fife of how can we teach this differently? And I don't know that it's I just think I was shocked by how wonderful it was and how joyful. And I had always just thought of it as a responsibility. And I think that that's probably the difference that I will teach with my daughter is just that it's the greatest blessing and privilege I've ever had. And it's the most joy I've ever felt. And it's in love. It's being in love. And you get that gift. And not everyone gets that. And I just wish that we could teach it that way rather than as a duty. Gorgeous. Thank you. I have one last thought, Dan. Uh, this is Jennifer. I, I just want to say, too, I, I really feel grateful, even even with all of our critiquing and so on, I feel really grateful for the teaching of motherhood in the sense that I feel like I was given a great gift by my mother be, being so invested in that role with me as a child. I feel like she really gave it her whole heart, and she did a wonderful job. And I feel like she did have a lot of institutional support for that. And I would also say, you know, there was a decision, I think I brought it up earlier, around me deciding to not take this professorship and to instead stay home. And a lot of my non-LDS colleagues were quite surprised that I was going to do that. It seemed so non-feminist. And it's, (laughs) I mean, it just was sort of counter to their idea about what was a legitimate choice. But one of my um, supervisors at the time said to me, you know, I really wanted to stay home myself when my kids were young and I didn't have the courage to do it. And I really felt like it was a cultural gift. I really knew I had a group of people that would support it. So, you know, in some ways I was sort of straddling two worlds and it allowed me more of a sense of choice. But I also knew that staying home was institutionally supported And so it gave me the freedom to choose what I really felt best about. And so it's just a way of honoring also, even though it's complex, it is a wonderful thing if we can give our children very able parents and willing parents and a group of people that support that. So 
Well, thank you. That that's wonderful, and I, I love that we we brought it back where I always live Mormon stories podcasts or Mormon matters podcasts to be, and that is. You know, there's things we don't like, but there are things that are wonderful, and I don't know, I just, I just, there's this, there's this cool sense that I have when I talk with people like you, and I know our listeners enjoy it, and this is what they respond to, and it's too, you know, no one here is looking away from the downsides, but we're always still remembering to, to embrace the upsides and the the joy and the beauty and and all that stuff too. So I just really am grateful that we brought this thing home in that in that spirit. So I just can't think of a more delightful group of uh, people to talk with. Thank you for this, Chelsea Fife. Thank you for bringing this subject up and getting this panel together and starting our framings. And I just feel really good about our discussion. So thank you, thank Chelsea. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, Chelsea Strayer, good luck with all you're doing. Thanks for being so awesome. You've really contributed a million things to this one, and we hope to have you back soon. Oh, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoy it. Cool. We want you. And Jennifer Finlandson Fife, there was one piece, well, thank you, of course, but there was one piece that I I meant to mention here. We're going to be posting this podcast about the 30th of August. Uh, From what I understand is you're coming to Utah, so at least a chunk of our listeners might get a chance to interact with you in person. Can you tell us what you're doing? Sure. I'm I'm coming to Utah, I think, the 23rd and 24th of September, and I'm doing a presentation um, to LDS women on Friday night about sexuality, mostly looking at um, my dissertation and female desire. And then on Saturday, I'm doing a workshop for LDS couples and dealing with issues of differences in desire within couples. So it's primarily for LDS couples or anybody associated with the church. The location is yet to be determined because it depends a little bit on how many people. But I've presented quite a bit around the country. I've just never made it to Salt Lake. So this is my foray into Salt Lake City. So even without the the location, how do they sign up? Well, if you go to my blog, which is not really a blog, I just post there where I'm presenting. It's uh, So it's drjenniferfife.blogspot.com. Okay, and then if you'll let if you'll let me know, you know, and and please use the Facebook, and we'll do all of our we'll do our best to put the word out. So when you know more details about things, but I'm assuming there's going to be some sort of cost to this, is it? Yeah, it's a twenty five dollar. Well, if you if you come with some a friend, it's only twenty dollars for the Friday night thing, but it's twenty five dollars per person or twenty if there's more than one person, and then the workshop on Saturday, which is I think about five hours long, is seventy five dollars for a couple. Great. Well, I may be there. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, well, uh, that that would be so fun. And you really have meant a lot to my wife and I. And we've had some great conversations with our 17 year old daughter, thanks to some of the insights from the Natasha interview. And uh, you've been terrific here as this panel is just blowing me away. So thank you very much listeners. Thank you for your good support of Mormon matters podcast. Please keep it up. We uh, love those donations and subscriptions and the nice notes. And we especially love it when we have an active conversation on the blog. So I will alert all these panelists when we go up and please feel free to direct questions and, and comments to them specifically. And I I know we can continue this conversation there. So thank you very much. Thanks Dan. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Matters Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. To keep this podcast alive, or to join our support community, 
Please consider a tax-deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org. Music for this podcast was brought to you by Brittany and Clayton Pixton. The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com. Thank you for listening. as well.